You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today, we have a guest speaker. Just welcome Bruce Kendrick this morning. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning. We're going to be in James 1. So if you've got your Bible, open up there. Um, as Rob said, my name is Bruce Kendrick. And uh, about three years ago, we were looking at this nonprofit that we had started and we're engaging in uh, caring for vulnerable children and families here in this community and just went, gosh, we have got to stop the trend of outsourcing the ministry of God that is intended for the church to be the tip of the spear to nonprofits. And we were a nonprofit. And uh, we just went, this is not how God has designed it. It's not that nonprofits don't play a role. It's just that the church is supposed to be the tip of the spear. The church is supposed to be where people are welcomed and coming in and being discipled. And so uh, a church reached out and said, hey, we want to get after it in Dallas County. And we went, great. Uh, and so Denise was able to step into the role of leading Embrace Texas and, and the rest of our staff and uh, churches like yours have jumped in and just gone, hey, we want to continue to be the tip of the spear. We, we want uh, to continue to advocate for vulnerable children and families. We want to continue to be known for being a church that is adopting children who uh, do not have families to call their own. And so uh, Embrace has continued to grow and thrive uh, because of not its own success, but because of churches that are going, hey, we want to own this. We want to be a part of this. Uh, we want this to be a part of the DNA of who we are as God's people. And so I've had the privilege of jumping on staff at Watermark, uh, where we initially just kind of had an adoption ministry. And we had recognized through our own experience that adoption is great, but it's downstream of lots of other things that have gone wrong. Like when a child gets to that point where they don't have a family, lots of things had to go wrong in order for that child to not have a family right? Because God designed uh, families to have moms and dads and kids who are cared for and loved and discipled. And uh, we ended up having a uh, sort of a more of a family restoration ministry, if you will, uh, because that's the biblical precedent of what we see in the scripture, that it's not just adoption. We tend to resonate with that, but it was more of a family restoration. And then on top of that, they said, oh, hey, by the way, uh, we have this after abortion care ministry for women that we want you to oversee. And I went, okay, well, we would never wait until a child needs to be adopted to begin caring for them. So why would we wait until a woman's had an abortion to begin caring for her? And so we started to think about how do we go upstream and how do we help other churches engage in that? How do we think about this continuum of care, this holistic effort that the church should be, again, that tip of the spear for? And uh, it's been just such an incredible blessing to, to lock arms with churches like yours. And so uh, before I get any further, this is a picture of the family. It's sort of a, I don't want to bury the lead, but um, you don't normally start with this, right? In normal conversations, you don't step in like, hey, my name's Bruce. My name's Craig. Great. I've got nine kids, right? Because immediately you get the stigma of a big family. Uh, and so it's dangerous to ask somebody like me to come and speak on a Sunday morning because I can spend 30 minutes bragging on my kids. Uh, just love them to death. As you can see, some of them are biological, as my wife and I both have red hair. And so I don't know if you know how genes work, but we're trying to keep recessive dominant up here. And, uh, and so everybody else is adopted. So four biological kids, five adopted. And while it's dangerous to invite somebody like me to come speak on a Sunday morning just for the sake of time, apparently it's not dangerous whenever you go to Walmart because uh, everybody's in their pajamas anyway, so people just feel free, right? And uh, 
in the parking lot, you can see them initially, they're counting us with their hands. And then as we all look and stare and are like, you're counting us, we're not sheep. Um, they realize, and then they put their hands down and then do it with their eyes. And we inevitably end up saying something like, don't forget to carry the one. Yeah, he's with us too. Come on. Uh, but once we get inside, the conversations get real because then you're actually strolling by people. You're not just at a distance. So people start to put kind of the big family into the categories. They understand big families. So the first one is always, oh, hey, like you have such a beautiful family. Are you Mormon? It's always a little awkward. No, 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 not Mormon. And, and before we even have a chance to kind of share even a tidbit, it's, oh, Catholic. Like, still, no, what is happening right now? Can we just get our groceries and get out of here? And then lastly, there's always the homeschool then. Homeschool, you must be homeschoolers. That's it, you nailed it. Habakkuk and uh, Dorcas, come on over and let's introduce to these strangers real quick. Uh, we're not homeschoolers either. I love my homeschool friends, but you got a reputation. Um, and... Uh, and that obviously then transitions into um, this sort of, just that curiosity getting the best of people where then they say, oh, you all are saints. What a calling you have on your life. And I just never know how to respond. I never know what to say to them. I'm always just, thank you. You're in, standing in front of the peanut butter and we need it, right? Um, and I start with that because I, I just recognize that we are a forgetful people. Like the reason why we come here every week, week in and week out, is to remind ourselves of who God is. To remind ourselves of who we are. That we've gotten to the point where we think some are called to adopt, some are called to foster, some are called to evangelize, some are called to sing. There are some of you who are sitting next to some brothers and sisters this morning who are like, nope, that's not your calling. That is not. No, you're, you're meant to tithe. That's, that's what you're good at. Um, <laughs> and we have just forgotten that a part of the DNA, our identity as brothers and sisters in Christ, as members of the family of God, is to care for the vulnerable, is to share the gospel, is to be salt and light in our communities. That it's not just a calling for some. If anything, it's just a biblical instruction of who we are that we are all saints that God is compelling to be more obedient and more faithful as he reveals more of his glory to us and through us. And so what's at stake then is that we would be an inconsequential church, that we might have this kind of empty faith that amounts to little more than head knowledge, that we just kind of fill ourselves more with that information each week. We might read our Bibles a little bit more, understand a little bit more, but there might not be an expression, a consequence for who we are as God's people, that whenever the, the, the world looks around and go, what would be different about this community if Grace Church wasn't here? That it might change your Sundays, but other than that, what is the consequence of Grace Church in this community? Man, that hurting people would not have a refuge to run to. That hurting children would not have a place to call family or home. And so what I want to spend our time doing this morning is reorienting, reminding our hearts and our minds who we are as God's family and what the family business is, what we're about as God's family. And so if you have not found your way to James 1 yet, uh, I am not sure I can do much more for you. I'm on page 1,325 in my Bible. I don't know where you found yours, but James 1 is where we're at. Read along with me. 
It says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of God. And so I, I just want to look at three things um, this morning about what God's word says about who we are and what we do. And then we can go to lunch. And so the first one is the family of God is a family that refines. The family of God is a family that refines. And let me start just by this. My dear brothers and sisters. Okay. This isn't just James giving us kind of this cliche so that we can, hey, brother, hey, sister, how are you doing today? And just pass each other. Oh, I'm fine. Oh, good. I'm glad that you're fine. How are you doing? I'm fine too. But that as we talk about being brothers and sisters in a family that isn't just cliche, this is, this is accountability. This is encouragement and support, not just when you're super down. This is refining you so that you might grow and be healthy. And unfortunately, the world just set a terrible precedent for us of what family looks like, right? The world makes a bad family as they kind of wander and drift in the wind. And yet God, as he has created and designed us, goes, look, this is what family looks like. It looks like accountability. It looks like support. It looks like encouragement. It looks like challenge. It looks like, hey, let's take a look at your finances because you're drowning in debt and you're not able to tithe or you're not tithing right now or, or you're not able to give is there's no margin in your life to be interrupted. And so when my wife and I first started fostering, we honestly stepped into it in sort of this mentality of, oh, this is like our ministry, this thing that we're called to. And people would walk up to us, kind of like that old high school friend or college friend or old neighbor or somebody that you used to live near. And you kind of knew, but they're like, hey, we should grab lunch sometime. And you know all along, you're never going to grab lunch with them. It's just like what you say. And so people would come up to us as we'd have like new kids join the family out of nowhere. And routinely people would walk up and say, oh, let us bring you dinner sometime. We, oh, that would be great. What a blessing. Right? We always say that. What a blessing. Oh, let us come babysit for you. How could we help? And in our pride, we were ultimately going, no, we got this. Only the reality is we didn't have this. Five years in, we were burning out. And it wasn't until somebody who was a, a, just a sweet sister of Christ that loved us enough to go, you're not fine. You're burning out. I'm bringing dinner over. <laughs> not, not, let me bring dinner over sometime. I'm bringing dinner over on Thursday. 
And she just stepped in and started imposing help on us. And it was the sweetest gift we could possibly have to kind of change that dynamic of instead of just sort of offering out, but to actually have help imposed on us, to be challenged with it from somebody who had margin that could care for us well. And so that's kind of one side of the spectrum when we look at our family is just those of us who kind of in our affluence and in our middle-class lifestyles where it's not okay to be needy, to have people impose help on us. On the other side, what we see is in the family of God, it's like we've got everybody kind of standing up on the shore and just a handful of people. And it's not just those who are fostering or adopting. I don't want you to be misled or walk out of here today and think, oh, you know, there's this hierarchy of, of faith and those who are fostering or adopting are somehow more righteous and holy than any of the rest of us. Remember, we are all saints being refined. But there are those of us who step out kind of on the pier and, and we put one foot after the other as we feel some kind of movement of God to go and just faithfully care for vulnerable children and give of our families. And so as we continue to step forward, it's like we're getting a little bit further out and we realize the water's getting a little, a little more wavy. It's a little deeper. It's a little murkier. We start to get out to the end and everybody on the shore is kind of getting the buzz. It's like, oh, they're walking out on the edge there. Look at them. I heard they're going to adopt. Did you hear they're going to adopt? I heard they're going to foster. You hear they're going to foster? And all of a sudden, everybody's kind of, that, that little dull buzz has grown into a roar and, and people are getting excited. And they're making banners and they're getting that all together. And, and all of a sudden, this chant begins. Jump, jump. As our friends are kind of getting to the edge and they're looking and they're like, man, this does not look smooth. Um, but I, I know God's brought me here. I'm going to trust him in it. And they're looking back. They're like, should I jump? Should I jump? And I'm like, jump jump. By this time, pyrotechnics are going off, and we've got a plane flying overhead with a banner saying, jump, right? And everybody's geeked up about it. And then finally, our friends at the end, they go, okay, I'm going to do it. And they jump in. And then the shore goes silent. And our friends who have just jumped into the deeps find themselves struggling to keep their head above water. I didn't know I signed up for this, but I mean, I'm struggling. I'm committed to it. My marriage is a little bit shaky right now, or the other kids in my home are are having a little bit of difficulty. And and everybody back on the shore kind of starts to look at each other and, well, shouldn't shouldn't somebody help? Shouldn't somebody do something? And we look at one another. It's the family of God. We've only been equipped to yell jump. And And so it's not that there's any specific calling to foster or specific calling to adopt, but there is a specific instruction that says that we should care for the vulnerable, that we should be refining one another, that we should be encouraging one another, that we should be challenging one another further still. That when we see our our lives just get dull or that we get numb and when we come in and you're like, "Ah, I feel like I'm just going through the motions this morning, that you should have some very real conversations at lunch today. Hey, how is your heart? Has this thing just become rote for you? I realize that I've only gone like four words, five words into this passage. And But if we don't get this part right, if we don't recognize who we are as God's children, as brothers and sisters in Christ, who in our small groups are holding one another accountable and challenging one another, man, There's a lot of this that just doesn't matter from what I'm about to say. And so James continues, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. 
You see, what happens whenever we step into caring for the vulnerable or whenever we start to challenge one another, conflict arises. Man, we hate conflict. (laughs) We are not good at it. We don't like that refining part of it. We like the part where it's like, great, let's do a potluck. Great, let's have a meal. But that piece where it's like, hey, you said something that doesn't line up with Scripture. Or you've done something, or I've done something that doesn't line up with Scripture, scripture, and now I'm confessing it to you. And I need you to bear my burden with me and provide accountability. Man, when is the last time that you walked up to a brother or sister in Christ and went, hey, I need you to hold me accountable. I'm struggling in my marriage. I need you to hold, hold me accountable. I'm struggling in my faith. I have doubts that, that I'm not wrestling with. I've just grown numb to it. It's just become common. It's become normal. And James says, man, don't revert back to what you were. He specifically here is, is actually looking at, in verse 21, the, the symbol of of baptism, he says, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Quite literally, that we were buried with Christ in his death. That he who had no sin became sin so that we might receive the righteousness of God. And we are raised to walk in newness of life. And so historically in the Christian tradition, you would actually get new clothes. Like you would come up out of the water and they would go, you're going to have to take that off now. Because we've got new clothes for you to symbolize the newness that you are walking in. Which, which person in this room would ever go, you know what, give me the dirty clothes back. They were so good and comfortable. And, but this is what we do, and it's why James says everyone should be slow to speak, quick to listen. May you slow your heart down. Parents, we know this really well. Because when our kids get out of line, man, it is so easy to just ratchet that thing up. (laughs) By God, I'll tell you what's about to happen. And James goes, hey, hey mom, hey dad, hey son, hey daughter, be slow to become angry. Get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you. Because quite frankly, there are some of us that have stepped forward and we've gone, hey Jesus, at the foot of the cross, I am laying my sin down. I am surrendering it to you. You know, those sins that really, really disappoint you, I'm laying those ones down, the ones that I'm really convicted about. And then we step back and go, but I've got some other ones. I've got some pride. I've got some envy. I've got some respectable sins that I feel like I've got a grasp on. And it's those sins that when we step out and we start caring for vulnerable people or when stress starts coming into our life or whatever it may be, those sins start to get exposed. And oftentimes what happens, I see this a lot in adoptive families who have stepped forward and go, well, look, we want to care for the vulnerable. I'm like, great. And you bring a child with trauma into your home and they start to expose the sin you have not dealt with. That stuff that's unresolved. And that, that child ends up becoming a scapegoat because your stuff got unmanaged. And sometimes, admittedly, kids can just be hard. Like in general, like any kids in here that just go, yeah, sometimes. I'm, I mean, I'm a kid, so I'm still wrestling with stuff, figuring it all out. 
And but a lot of times as adults, we've just kind of said, hey, Jesus, this managed sin stuff, I, like, I got I to gotta grip on this until it gets exposed. And, and then we feel exposed, then we feel vulnerable. And guess what? The family of God refines. We are intended to be transparent and vulnerable with one another. That we go, hey, I just need to be vulnerable. I need somebody I can talk to right now. Where are my brothers and sisters? That we would then humbly accept the word planted in us because it's the the word that saves us. James continues, he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. So real quick, I just want to pause and let's just ask, what does the word actually say we should do? Feels like there's a lot of do's and don'ts in here. Kids, y'all get sort of the, like the list of, okay, I'm, I'm not supposed to do these 600 laws, right, from the Old Testament that came after the whole, like, hey, just don't eat of that tree. Remember just that one that we had to follow that we weren't able to do? And then he tacks on like 200 more, and then he tacks on like 400 more. He's like, look, this is what happens whenever we stop obeying the Lord. And then there's all these things that we're supposed to do as well. And what I want to I suggest to you, especially if like you've read the Bible and you're kind of like, gosh, this is a lot of stuff to, to memorize and, and understand what I'm supposed to do, is maybe understand Christianity less as a rule uh, or a list of do's and don'ts and more of a feast that God has set before you. I think Micah 6.8 does a great job of summarizing what we're supposed to do and be as God's family as we reflect on who he is, as we reflect what the word of God says, as Micah 6, 8 says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That God sets this feast out in front of you of justice and mercy and humility, and that is absolutely delicious. And is this feast that we get to enjoy into eternity. And yet somewhere along the way, right, we've got that old self, that managed sin that we've not quite surrendered. And it's like the equivalent of the canned cranberry sauce that you just stuffed in your purse. To bring. Who brings the cranberry sauce to Thanksgiving? Who is that person, right? No, no repent and be, (laughs) Um, right? It's like God has set out this feast for us. He says, come and eat. He has made a place for you at the table. Among the family of God, among brothers and sisters who care and love for you, and you have gone, ah, I'm comfortable with this. I'm used to this. And that we would understand that God desires for you to be full, for you to experience abundance. And oftentimes, we kind of return to our moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Feast on justice and mercy and humility. Verse 23, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. 
So we were about five or six years into fostering. At two different occasions, God had placed uh, six children in our care under the age of six. So just everybody take a deep breath there. That was a lot of diapers. <laughs> and so, you know, that was life for us. And um, at this time, we had our three biological children. We had one foster son who was with us, who was an infant we were caring for. And my wife stumbles upon this thing called the Texas Adoption Resource Exchange. It's a, a list, kind of a picture um, a listing, photo listing of a third or so of the children waiting to be adopted here in the state of Texas, which was just super dangerous because she's like, we could take that one and we could take that one and that one. And I even got into it too. I was like, man, that kid's 16. They're going to be in our house for about two years. They'll graduate high school. They'll move out and we could do it all over again. We could just do that for the... We got super excited, but we didn't realize that there were kids that actually aged out of foster care without a family at all because all the children that had come into our home had been reunified with parents or gone to a relative's home. And so we called up our agency and we said, hey, so we know we've just kind of been in this foster thing and it's been great. Lots of bumpiness throughout this thing, need lots of refinement, lots of reflection. And here we are, we're reflecting again. We realize there are kids who age out and we want to adopt a boy between the ages of 10 and 15. Do you know any? And on the other end of the line, you can kind of hear our caseworker clickety-clacking away on our keyboard, looking for emails, looking for a database of kids waiting. They said, gosh... Anytime that we get an email for a child over the age of eight, we press delete because there are no families looking to adopt those kids. So that call was on a Wednesday and we were just crushed. Like, man, what kind of agency do we work with that isn't, that isn't seeking these kids and finding families for them? And at the same time, what kind of church do we worship with that isn't stepping in to care for some of the most vulnerable in our communities? So Wednesday passed, Thursday passed, and Friday we got a call back from the director of our agency. They're like, hey, are you serious? Yeah, yeah, we're serious. I said, okay, well, there's a young man living on our campus. And uh, he didn't even know adoption's available as an option to him anymore, but he's 15. We'll ask him. We'll let you know. So that was on Friday. We met our son Brandon on Monday. And then he moved in forever the following Friday. So if you were convicted today and you were like, hey, we want to adopt a teenager, I bet we could have one here in the next like 24 hours. Because there's that kind of need. But as we spent time with Brand, just kind of unpacking his stuff and then watching our own stuff kind of get spilled out, I uniquely remember one day where we had just, I mean, we had been through the ringer together. And in a large family, kind of the only places you get privacy are in bathrooms. So I'm just locked away in a bathroom having this conversation with the Holy Spirit. And as clear as day, I looked at God, I complained, and I went, God, why would he reject our provision and our care and our love? And the Holy Spirit just so patiently and kindly went, hey, do you not see yourself reflected in him, in your rebellion for God's provision and care and love for you? Do you not see yourself? Man, church, we, we are a people who look into the mirror and don't forget what we see as we're reminded of God's patience for us, as God's care for us. And yet he says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom 
and continues in it. And so church, this isn't just an add-on to the message. This is the message. That Jesus Christ lived and died and was resurrected. That the gospel is at the center of everything that we do. If you're hearing, hey, you can leave Jesus behind and go serve vulnerable children, that's not it. You're missing it. You're going to show up empty-handed with no armor on. You're not going to be ready to meet the needs of that child because you walked in with nothing to offer them. And I hear lots of people talk about, I used to say it myself, hey, this foster care, this adoption thing, it's like this is the tangible gospel. No, it's not. The gospel is the tangible gospel. If your theology is not practical, if you're here and you're hearing the word of God and you're going, gosh, I just don't know how I'd apply that. It may not be theology. Either that or you're not considering what it means to be a part of the family of God, that you would be refined, that you would reflect on his word and what it says, that you would become biblically literate, that you would be a Berean as Paul visited the city in Acts, and he goes, hey, here's the gospel, and what do the Bereans do? They go, you know what? We love what you're saying. It sounds really good. Let us go back and study the scriptures, and then we'll get back to you. That you would not be swayed by anything that I say today, but that you would go home, and you would study the scriptures and go, is this who we are as God's people? And if it is, then what is our response? as we look at the perfect law that gives freedom, that we would continue to persevere and endure in it. Then James says in verse 26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Um, So when I first started coming to church, God gave me the spiritual gift of sarcasm and cynicism. And in the event that you were wondering, I don't remember seeing that in Galatians with the fruits of the Spirit. That's because it's not there. Um, But there are a lot of us who are great at complaining about the music or the message or the lighting or whatever it is. And I found myself in that. I was like, gosh, mom and dad, we can do better with our Sunday morning. Come on, let's sleep in. I love sports. Come on, I'm in a league. I don't want to have to skip games on Sundays. And my parents lovingly just went, hey, you're, you're, you're not understanding what we're doing here. This isn't moral therapeutic deism where we just try to get you to behave better. Our role as your parents is to make sure that you don't show up on judgment day and stand before your creator and be surprised. That you would stand before God and go, I knew this day was coming and I still chose my own way. But I was told what the gospel would be or that you might show up on that day and go, Father. Because that's who we are as God's family. That we would know that that managed sin can be set at the foot of the cross and we can cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, because he's so good. And yet we find ourselves often considering ourselves religious 
and God going, hey, look, in, in all that effort and energy you're putting into cynicism or even just showing up on Sundays, you could actually put that into something that I intended. And I went, God, that sounds like a great idea. Let's get after it. Because the God of family started to refine, or the, the family of God started to refine me. The, the family of God helped me reflect on his word so that I'd be biblically literate. And then the family of God is like, all right, we got work to do. Let's go and restore as Christ has restored us. Let's go and reconcile because we're ambassadors, because we are sent ones who get to bring truth into the world. We get to preserve it. We get to restrain evil. That we wouldn't be like those, as Isaiah says, that come near to God with our mouths and honor him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. That our worship of him is based on merely human rules that have been taught. And because we say a lot of foolish stuff in the church still that's not in the Bible. We say things like God helps those who help themselves. You can find that in First Imaginations chapter 25, verse 13. We say things like um, fake it until you make it. Also, not in the Bible. You know what is in the Bible? And God rescues those who are broken and contrite. A broken and contrite spirit, oh God, you will not reject, you will not refuse. And that we might humble ourselves, that we might go, yes, God, I'm broken and broken further still, and I'm going to stay broken until you show up. And that as we experience that, and we experience healing, and we experience biblical community in this family that God has given us, that we might go out as beggars showing other beggars where to find bread because we found it and we've been filled, that we might come and go, come with me. Come and see that the Lord is good. That we would not just consider ourselves religious and just say religious things. And James wraps up and he says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so that, that first part of that, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, is sort of like this umbrella statement around caring for the poor, caring for the needy. And I think Deuteronomy 10, 18 through 19 does an amazing job of helping us with this as well because it, it's a, a point of um, empathy that we would step into this space as opposed to a command. Deuteronomy 10, 18 through 19 says this, that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And so you too should love the foreigner for you were once foreigners in Egypt. And as Gentiles, I don't know if you know this, but unless you are of Jewish descent, you are a foreigner in God's family who's been engrafted in. As Gentiles who were once on the outside that Christ made a way for, and it is a beautiful image to turn around and go, hey, we are welcomed in and so I'm welcoming you in. And so just real quick, I want to run through four things about how we care for the poor, okay? And then we'll be done. First, lead with choices. Joshua 24, he stands before the nation of Israel and he says, choose who you will serve today. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here is life, here is death. You pick. 
And a lot of times as a church, we flinch whenever we get accusations of not being pro-life, but just pro-birth. Because of all the kids who are waiting to be adopted. And I would suggest to you, hey, it's not necessarily our job to control all the outcomes of every decision that is made. But it's our job to make sure the offering is set before people. Hey, here's life and here's death. You choose. I'm willing to walk with you if you choose life. And if there's death, I can't do anything for you. I would just be enabling you to continue to make those choices over and over again. That we would lead with choices. Secondly, that we would overcome brokenness because there are certainly times where even in the midst of wanting to give someone choices, you realize that they're at a point of brokenness that it wouldn't matter what choice was available to them because they are dead in their sins. So we think about Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan assuming it's a parable. That wasn't an actual event that Jesus was noting. This man is next to death. And Jesus goes, this is what it's like to be a neighbor. That you would steward your finances, your home, your family, your, your furniture, your kitchen table. There would always be an opportunity to be interrupted, that there might be somebody in this room today, a single adult, somebody who's widowed, somebody that you just pass in life and you go, hey, would you be willing to just grab, I'm going to lunch anyway. There's going to be an extra seat at the table because I've made room. There's going to be provision because I've planned ahead. And that if we haven't planned ahead in that way, let's go back to remembering that the family of God refines so that every single one of us is thoughtful about how we can wrap around those in need, how we can be interruptible, how we can be a provider as we overcome brokenness. Because there are a thousand kids waiting to be adopted in DFW today. There are 6,000 children here in the state of Texas, over 100,000 children here in the United States, and over 17 million children that are known as double orphans, meaning both of their parents had passed away that we would make room for them, that we would overcome brokenness. Thirdly, we have to value consequences. Um, Isaiah 1, I think, does a great job of just spelling this out and recognizing that our faith is meant to be consequential. We talk a lot about faith being unconditional or love being unconditional. And I want to suggest that, that we might encourage one another about the consequences of what it means to be a part of the family of God and who he is. And so I'm going to read in verse 10. This is just going to take a bit through verse 20. It says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. It's like, God, don't hold back. I mean, just tell us how you really feel. Um, I hate 
with all my being. They have become a burden to me, your new moon festivals and your appointed festivals. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow that your faith would be consequential. Come now. Let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. You see, in Hebrew, there are no question marks. And so oftentimes we interpret this passage to our benefit. And we think, oh, our sins are like, are like scarlet, but they'll be made white as snow. And we often give ourselves a pass thinking that's grace. And brothers and sisters, if we go on sinning, leaning on this idea that we can just continue in our ways, and we have missed the gospel. We have missed what grace is. Lastly, um, we have to enjoy restoration if we're going to care for the poor. That it's not just about putting your head down and continuing to sacrifice yourself time and again. Because honestly, God's just not that impressed with us. <laughs> I mean, when we started this whole journey, we thought, man, God, we are just going to fall into heaven and be exhausted. And God went, why? Because, I mean, I rested on the seventh day. What makes you think that what you have to offer is so necessary that you would exhaust yourself and not enjoy and celebrate the restoration that I've done in your own life and the life of others that I'm moving you towards? And so when we started to care for some really hard situations and, and kids who are really struggling, um, specifically, I remember going into worship one night after one of our kids had run away. And we didn't know what to do with that. That was kind of a first, like, oh, like, how, how, why would, why would he reject? Why is he gone? What, where is he? We continued to pursue him until he came home. And the day he came home, we, we, we had to go to worship. I was like, hey, we even have time to have this conversation right now. I've got to go lead worship. And the whole family's coming, so you're coming with us because you're part of the family. And before I went up on stage to lead our church in worship, I just pulled him aside and I said, hey, I, I need you to forgive me. And I need you to know that you're forgiven. This isn't just like a, hey, I'm just checking this box off so I can go be on stage. I genuinely am not walking another step while holding anger in my heart against you. And I, I'm asking for your forgiveness as well. And some of the sweetest worship that I've been a part of because God was restoring my heart. And then that night afterwards, we all loaded up into our 12-passenger van because nine kids. And uh, we, we were like, where's... So I walked back into the church and he's on one end of the church and I'm on the other. And we kind of met in the middle and just embraced. And he just went, I'm sorry. Thank you. And 
The second part of James 1.27 talks about keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world because the reality is that restoration is not cheap, ministry is not easy, and family's hard. And so this morning, as, as you refine one another, as you reflect on what God's word says, as you understand your role in restoration, as God's moved in you, I want to remind you who our God is. In Psalm 68, 5 through 6, it says, He is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows in his holy dwelling, and he sets the lonely in families. And you and I were those lonely ones who have been set in a family. And if he is a father to the fatherless, then we are a brother to the brotherless and a sister to the sisterless. And that's who we are as God's family. And so whatever God has given you to steward, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you. Grace Church is as a body of believers who are united together, who are refining and encouraging one another, and continue still more to excel in the things of God. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.